On April 8, 1994, an electrician discovers the body of Kurt Cobain in a room above his garage at his Seattle home. The police quickly rule it a suicide. However, some facts of the case just don't add up. What really happened to this grunge legend? Let's find out in this week's episode, The Death of Kurt Cobain. It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast with your hosts, Agent ETA and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. First, it's time for Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed. This is the Mind Boggle of the Week. The Polygraph. Also known as the Lie Detector, the polygraph uses physiological indicators such as blood pressure and respiration to determine if someone is telling a lie. It was invented in 1921 by John Augustus Larson. Law enforcement and governments all over the world use it for interrogations and employment screening. The U.S. government calls it a psychophysiological detection of deception test. Witnesses request it and journalists cite it for credibility. However, not everyone thinks the polygraph is a good idea. Scientists, for example. The National Research Council, the American Psychological Association, and many others say the test isn't accurate. Many scientists call it a pseudoscience. The Supreme Court once said it was little better than what could be obtained by the toss of a coin. A report to Congress said the polygraph is neither scientifically valid nor especially effective beyond its ability to generate admissions. The polygraph doesn't actually test lies, it tests physical arousal, which can be caused by many things such as PTSD or being questioned about a crime. Some have even successfully trained to beat the polygraph. Google will show you the way should you ever need to take one. Eventually, its own creator disavowed the test, saying, Beyond my expectation, through uncontrollable factors, this scientific investigation became, for practical purposes, a Frankenstein's monster, which I have spent over 40 years in combating. Why do we still use a device widely considered bunk even by its inventor? Why do governments still use it to convict criminals and screen employees? Why do the public and media have any trust in something that's no better than the flip of a coin? It boggles the mind. And now it's time for the show. Boom. Alright, so first we're going to get into a basic rundown of the events. A little bit of what led up to Kurt Cobain's body being found. So first, um, the general accepted narrative of Kurt Cobain's death kind of falls like this. And uh, Kurt Cobain went into a voluntary rehab on March 30th, and he actually left the next day after checking into that rehab. It's kind of funny because it was voluntary, but he jumped over the wall, which is a little odd, but I, I just found that kind of funny. Um, afterwards, uh, Courtney Love looks for him, uh, believing that he's lost, or she claims it. She thinks that he's lost. So she hires a detective to find him on April 3rd, I believe was the date. And no one's able to find him. So afterwards, an electrician that was hired to uh, install lighting around the perimeter of their garage in the uh, Seattle home found Kurt Cobain's body on April 8th. 
and he actually had a heroin and volume in his system. And a shotgun wound to the head. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget that one. Yeah, true that. Okay, next let's take a, that's the basic idea. Uh, most people think that's what happened. But why are so many conspiracy theorists saying otherwise? Let's go back and take a more detailed look at the case. First, it's important to note that some of the information we have gained are from the audio recordings by the private investigator Tom Grant. Other things are not as well established, so we recommend that anyone interested check it out for themselves. Let's start a little earlier in this narrative. In Rome, early March, Kurt Cobain went to the hospital because he overdosed on Rehypnol and Champagne. He was in the hospital for five days before he went home. And the day after he overdosed, he was supposedly unconscious the entire day. So he took a probably a fairly large dose. Mm -hmm. This event was called an accident until after his death. Then Courtney started to say that it was a suicide attempt. She didn't say that before the fact, mm -hmm. which is an interesting detail. And a lot of his friends and family actually got really mad at her about this because they figured if he was suicidal and this was a suicide attempt and she had told them about it, then they could have gotten him help that he needed to prevent the later suicide attempt, quote unquote, suicide attempt that ended in his death above his greenhouse or above his garage. Mm, yeah. So before I go, we go any further with these details. Another thing I want to talk about is Rehypnol. So Rehypnol is not your typical recreational drug. It's in the benzodiazepine class. Well, it's not, it's not really, it's not really like a recreational drug that anybody uses at all. Right. Right. Yeah. It's similar to Valium. But basically all it does is it makes you go to sleep and it makes you forget. It's it's the classical date rape drug. If you've ever seen a TV show mm -hmm. where somebody's slipping something into a drink and then the next day the, the person drug doesn't remember what happened, that's Rehypnol. That's the classic date rape drug. People don't really take this recreationally, so it would seem strange that Kurt would do so in Rome. Yeah. But why don't we move on a little further to, to the next the next little bit here? Okay, so um, on March 18th, Courtney Love phoned the police, and she actually claimed that Kurt Cobain was suicidal, that he was locked in his room with a gun. And so when the police showed up there, they supposedly took all his weapons, any guns that he had there at the house. Afterwards, Kurt Cobain was quoted as having said that he was scared, and he was actually hiding from Courtney Love, which is a, kind of an odd thing to say if they're married. Uh, why? I don't know. It, to me, it, I, I can't come up with a reason why unless, you know, she, he knew that she possibly meant him harm or had said something to that effect, you know? Well, she has been, she has been known. Um, she has publicly threatened people in the past. Yeah. Well, I say in the past, this is all in the past, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. She doesn't have a very good uh, reputation in public. Or at all, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's one person I think we need to mention right up front here is a very important character that that yes. is intertwined throughout this entire story. And there's a couple of very important red flags that are closely related to this individual. So who I'm talking about here is, is Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's family lawyer, actually their entertainment lawyer as well. And this is Rosemary Carroll. It's a very important figure within this, this story because... She provides some very interesting information to uh, the private investigator, uh, Mr. Grant there. According to the family lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, 
Kurt wanted a divorce before all this happened leading up to this. And he also wanted to take Courtney Love out of his will. And Courtney Love had also asked her to find her the nastiest divorce lawyer that she could. And also she wanted to uh, find out about getting out of the prenup that they had signed when, when she got married to Kurt Cobain. Yeah, so we have some motive established, and we have a credible witness in Rosemary Carroll. She's not just some junkie that was hanging out with him. She's Mm -hmm. a lawyer, and she's very close to the family from what I understand as well. Would would you say that's true, Agent ETA? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. She's known both of them for quite some time, and also she's the godmother of of their child. So that's got to be a a close person if you're going to put that upon them. If you're going to make anybody a godmother, godfather, what have you— I would imagine it's somebody who's very important in your life. And if they're that important in your life, they probably have a very important perspective upon their situation, you know, especially leading up to this, you know, to Kurt Cobain being found dead. Most of Kurt Cobain's friends all described him as being a very happy person. They, not not any of them would describe him as being suicidal. And this is kind of a, a very common theme that you see in a lot of the interviews with people that knew Kurt Cobain. And um, after he uh, left rehab by jumping over the wall, uh, he was spotted at an airport by fans. And he even talked with these fans and he signed autographs and stuff like that. So uh, the the guy definitely wasn't on the run. He doesn't seem like he was trying to hide, which is what Courtney Love claims. You know, when, when she was talking to the private investigator initially, she claims that he was hiding and that he was suicidal after she had uh, wanted him to start looking into credit cards initially, right? Right, yeah, and, and his behavior that's reported by other people besides Courtney yeah. doesn't really match up with what she's reporting. He doesn't appear to be hiding her on the run at all. Mm-hmm. And the the next little bit of the story we have is that he actually goes home to Seattle on April 2nd, and he meets, they have a live-in nanny named Michael DeWitt, who's an old friend of Courtney's and an ex-boyfriend of Courtney's. Mm-hmm. And he was he was their living nanny. So he goes home to Seattle and meets this guy. And that I mean, he's he's not hiding. He's a hundred percent not hiding, right? Mm-hmm. And phone records show that on April seventh, Michael DeWitt and Courtney Love spoke eight times. So that I mean, this is this is not hearsay, this is phone records. They spoke eight times on the second. Mm-hmm. Now, also, supposedly, Kurt called Courtney at her hotel, and she had told the hotel to block all calls except for calls from Kurt, but the hotel accidentally blocked Kurt's call. That's what Courtney says. Mm -hmm. The hotel says, this is all nonsense, and none of this stuff actually happened. She's just making it up. Uh, But Kurt called Courtney at the hotel, and she did not pick up the phone, (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. So again... We have a profile here of somebody who's not trying to hide. He called her at her hotel. He's saying, hey, you know, here I am. He's not hiding from anybody. And wh- while this is all going on and he's quote unquote missing, Courtney is telling everybody that he's suicidal. And this doesn't this just doesn't line up with, with what we know about his behavior at the time. Mm-hmm. And also how he's described by his closest friends and family. Right. The next day, April 3rd, Easter Sunday, Courtney calls Tom Grant, a private investigator who also used to work for the L.A. Sheriff's Department as a detective. She calls him and on the phone, she says that she needs him to help find a missing credit card that uh, those Kurt's credit card that's missing. But when they meet in person, she tells him that she actually wants him to find Kurt. 
it's a little inconsistency. It may, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. When they meet in person, she tells him that if he leaks any information to the press, she's going to sue him, which is kind of strange because if, if Kurt's lost and she's trying to find him, why would she not go to the press immediately? Because at, at this time, he could not leave his house without being swarmed by fans, I'm sure. So if she wanted to find him, all she had to do was go to the press with it. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. After the first time they met in person, Tom Grant said that it was very suspicious and it just kind of, it got his spidey sense tingling. So he decided to document everything and started recording phone calls even. Mm-hmm. Which ended up producing quite a bit of a... Uh interesting information or evidence, I guess you could say. There's some definite red flags, some very important recordings especially that I think really present kind of a, a personality of Courtney Love. Because you can tell, I, I don't know, this is obviously me being biased. This is my perspective, my opinion. But to me, when I, I listen to some of these recordings with her actual voice on it, man, it sounds like a vindictive person. You know what I mean? It sounds like someone motivated by something unpure, I I guess you could say. Right. Well, and I just want to point out to our listeners that you can go and download some of these recordings. They're not all available online, but you can find a decent amount of them. And we don't have time to, to slice and dice every single recording. It's not enough time on the show, but there's some pretty hairy stuff in these recordings. If you're interested in Diving into this case more, start with those recordings. Yeah, so so um, to go over just real quick again. So when Courtney Love first calls the investigator, Tom Grant, she says that he wa- she wants him to investigate a stolen credit card. This is what she tells him over the phone. When they meet in person, she changes the request to having him try to find Kurt Cobain. So it's it's funny to mention that, that somebody actually used the credit card that she was concerned about after Kurt Cobain supposedly had died. And she never reported it as she never ended up reporting as uh, lost or stolen from what I understand. The card was lost, but Kurt had never reported that it was yes. stolen. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he didn't. That's correct. Yeah. So the, those phone records are, are very interesting as well because so she hires this investigator, Tom Grant, and she doesn't even tell him that she spoke to uh, DeWitt eight times on uh, which which date was that? On the second. The second. She spoke yeah, that's with. Right. Okay. Yeah. On the second. I mean, that, that would be pretty important, if especially if he had contact with Kurt Cobain. Well, I mean, the whole the whole narrative starts to collapse at this point, and it only gets worse from here. But if she's looking for him, and DeWitt saw him on the second, mm-hmm. it, it, the whole, I mean, none of it really makes any sense when you get right down to it. But well, why would she not tell Grant that he was at home? Yeah, well, and, and it continues to not make sense, sense, because she also tells Grant not to look in their Seattle home. Because he won't be there. She she suggests that he uh, looks in expensive hotels, you know. And when Grant acts, asks, <laughs> when he acts, when he asks the people <laughs> that are closest to Kurt Cobain, he finds a different narrative. He, he finds out that, no, it turns out that it seems Kurt Cobain actually likes to stay at, stay at the seedy motels, the, the crappy, you know, dirty motels, because he feels more at home there. You know, at the, at the fancy ones, he feels fake, I guess. So yeah. it's, it's common knowledge that... Uh, between everybody that knew them personally, it's common knowledge that, that he liked to stay at the uh, the, co- the crappy hotels. And um, Courtney Love is the only one that, that claimed that he liked the expensive ones. And it's, it's kind of a, a, a theme, like other themes I had mentioned, that play over and over again within this story. It's a reoccurring theme, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it doesn't seem like 
there, there's one person in particular, you know, throughout this whole thing that doesn't seem to be honest is, is my impression. Yeah. Well, and if, if that's not weird enough, it gets weirder. We, I'm going to skip a uh, skipping ahead just a little bit. Coroners determined that, uh, that Kurt died on the fifth. Mm-hmm. So on the fifth, there was an anonymous phone call from Courtney's room. She was staying at a hotel room in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and there was an anonymous phone call reporting an overdose in that room. So the paramedics go in their room and they find her with drug paraphernalia, but no drugs. Mm-hmm. And the calls eventually traced back to her room. They take her to the hospital and they hold her on a minor charge. I It's probably a misdemeanor or something, mm-hmm. but it's illegal to have the drug paraphernalia, but she didn't have any drugs, so they couldn't really actually arrest her. Yeah. Who would have called and said that she was overdosing if she wasn't, she definitely wasn't overdosing. Mm-hmm. So why was that call made? It's a little suspicious that that just so happens to be room. that. Yeah. And also the same day that Kurt dies, it, it kind of seems like she's trying to set up an alibi. I mean, if you were trying to set up an alibi, that's a, a pretty decent way to do so, you know? Yeah. The next day on the 6th, she's staying with Rosemary Carroll at her house in Los Angeles. She tells the private investigator over the phone about the shotgun that Kurt has and that it's hidden in their bedroom. Now, she talked to the investigator, remember, she hired him before this, but mm-hmm. this is the first time that she mentioned anything about the shotgun. Mm-hmm. And Okay, so if he's suicidal and she's worried about him, but she doesn't mention the shotgun until the 6th, that's a little strange. Mm -hmm. But anyways, so at this point on the 6th, now she asks him, the private investigator, she now finally asks him to go check their house in Seattle, whereas before she told him not to check it. Yeah. So again, Kurt died on the 5th. She has this weird hotel thing where she gets arrested with drug paraphernalia just long enough to get, they take her to the hospital a few hours, the cops get her, and then they let her go right away. Mm. And then on the 6th, now all of a sudden, she wants him to check for the shotgun in the house. The shotgun. Why wouldn't she just say, go yeah. look for Kurt at the house, but specifically look, look for the shotgun at the house? Yeah. A little weird. So Grant does. He goes on the evening of the 6th. He goes and looks for the shotgun, but he doesn't find it anything. Mm-hmm. He doesn't find the shotgun there, but he does find Rahipnol. Under the pillow, was it the pillow or the bed? I forget which one it was. I believe it was under the bed in between the mattress and the box spring. Yeah. So there was apparently a very large Costco sized bag of Rehypnol, more than you would ever need unless you were having, I don't know, a Rehypnol party, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Courtney, Courtney later claims that there was another suicide note left on the pillow for her on the bed, Mm -hmm. but. When he was there on the 6th investigating, the private investigator, Tom Grant, did not see that note on the bed. This is important because if that note had been left on the bed, we know Kurt would have already been dead at this point. He would have seen that note and Courtney had not gone home yet. Uh Even though she's really looking for him, she still hasn't gone home to find him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Courtney Love also explains that note as uh, having been found in a large... A manila envelope, I believe. Is that correct? I don't. I don't remember the details of that note, unfortunately. She, if I'm remember, if I'm remembering correctly from that um, documentary that I watched, there was. Uh, I know that Tom Grant was involved in a. Uh, I, it was called Soaked in Bleach. That's the one. 
Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's it's uh, there's a lot of the the recordings that we're talking about uh, that were provided by Tom Grant. A lot of those recordings are are in that documentary. That note was a large enough item to where if it was on top of the bed, especially if it was in plain sight, there's no way that they wouldn't have noticed it because they were already focused in on on a search. You know what I mean? They were in the mind the mindset of searching. Uh, so anything that anything that looked out of the ordinary would have stood out to them. I would imagine at least. Yeah. And if he's flipping the room apart, you know, looking under pillows and mattresses and stuff, searching for this hidden shotgun, he would have seen a letter on the, you know, you would have just seen it. There's no way you could miss something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when he went to the house, when he went to Seattle, actually, he basically had this guy, Dylan Carlson, that was following him around. And he was kind of like, it seems to me like he was kind of like Courtney loves gopher. You know what I mean? Um, mm. her, her messenger, because after he got to Seattle, he spoke to Courtney love very, very little on the phone. Most of uh, the information that he got from her from there on out was given to him through Dylan Carlson. So she, Courtney love would, would speak to Dylan Carlson on the phone and then he would relay that information, um, to Tom Grant. So, on the uh, 6th, Courtney Love was staying at Rosemary's, Rosemary Carroll's house. And Rosemary Carroll uh, claims to have overheard her telling uh, Dylan Carlson on the phone to check the greenhouse. But he never mentioned that uh, the greenhouse to the private investigator when he told, when they went over there to search. I don't know. I don't know if we mentioned, did we say that the greenhouse is that that's where Kurt's body was found? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that'd be pretty important to mention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think we mentioned that yet. So I want to, the greenhouse, it's a room above the garage. The garage is not attached to the house and it's basically like, it's not a greenhouse for plants. I don't think it's just kind of like a guest room up there above the garage. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So, um, Carlson denies that this that, that this ever happened, but Rosemary says that it's obvious to her that that him and Courtney are are lying about it. From that's what she claims. Yeah, well, I mean, she heard them. <laughs> yeah, she heard she, them talking about it. She overheard. Yeah, she overheard the conversation, and she's somebody that that seems to be genuinely concerned about the situation. She wants to find the truth. It seems to me, at least. Grant and Carlson goes over to the house to search again on the seventh, and he finds a note on the stairs that was put there by Dewitt. And this, the note was placed right there in plain sight on the stairs, and it wasn't there the previous evening because they walked up those stairs, and yeah, some a piece of paper just lying on the stairs, however big, would probably stand out pretty pretty uh, well. They'd notice it. So the nerd, the 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 nerd, <laughs> the, the note the note says, Kurt, I can't believe you managed to be in this house without me noticing. And then the nerd go the. <laughs> the note the note goes on to basically talk smack to Kurt Cobain and telling um Kurt Cobain that he's selfish for not calling Courtney love. So the the private investigator says that the note looked like a plant to him to make it seem like Kurt was sneaking around and trying to avoid everybody else basically. Right, and that that's such a strange detail too because When's the last time you ever heard of somebody's hired help, like their maid or their butler, mm -hmm. tell it, oh, I can't believe you came into this house without saying hello, blah, blah, blah. And the strange yeah. thing is that he actually did meet with DeWitt on the second. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that note is definitely suspicious. Mm -hmm. Out of place. So at this, yeah. So at this time on the seventh, Courtney is still in Los Angeles, still did not go to home to Seattle. She's still in Los Angeles. She seems very concerned 
Yeah. <laughs> super, <laughs> super concerned. So on the 8th, the next day, an electrician finds Kurt Cobain's body in the house. The electrician that found him was Gary Smith from the Vecca Electric Company. He was installing security lighting above the garage. He saw Kurt Cobain's body from the outside of the greenhouse doors. I found some pictures of this greenhouse, and it's really hard to tell. Some people said that where he was installing the cameras would have been the perfect place to see inside the doors. And Mm -hmm. one thing I was not able to find out was when this guy was hired. Uh Because uh, for me, like I couldn't find anybody even talking about that. But for me, that is a key piece of the story that's missing. Yeah. So if we have... I I think it's also important to mention at this point as well... When Tom Grant went over there to investigate, he had he hadn't noticed that the greenhouse was even there because he wasn't told that the greenhouse was there. And when they went over there, from what he claims, it was a it was at nighttime first of all, so it was very dark, and it was also mm-hmm. raining. So uh-huh. he didn't notice that that greenhouse was even there because supposedly from I've seen pictures of it online too, and and there's definitely a lot of large trees and. and bushes and stuff around there and uh, it's reasonable to me if it was dark and raining and you weren't looking for it you didn't know it was there uh, yeah I, I could see how you might miss it yeah and to me it looks like too from the front there are some windows there but they look kind of decorative you could mm-hmm. walk by that and think that it was just a loft and some decorative windows like it wasn't actually a room up there mm-hmm. yeah like you like you're saying i think it'd be real easy to miss that but anyways the when the electrician was hired for me, is a key piece of evidence because if they hired the electrician like a month prior and he just didn't get around to the job, that's one thing. But Mm -hmm. if Courtney hires the private investigator to find him and then tells him to go search the house on the 6th and then he goes to search the house on the 6th and the 7th and does not find Kurt's body, and then if the electrician was hired on the 8th to install the specific security lighting on the specific place where he would have had to look at he would he would have been looking directly down onto Kurt's body mm-hmm. as he installed the camera. That's the location from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So if he was hired to do that on the 7th or the 8th, that is a whole new level of suspicion. Not that we need it for the case, but for me, that's a key piece of information that's missing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the the first person on the scene was a paramedic named John Fisk. It was, isn't that the villain from, uh, from Daredevil? Well, anyways, he, he was, uh, he was the first person into the room and the supervisor. F- I know that there was a, uh, there was a UFC fighter or I'm sorry, a mixed martial artist named John Finch. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I like that guy. He's good. <laughs> the supervisor from the electric company, Bruce Williams called a radio show when he caught wind of it from his worker. And that's how people found out almost immediately about the death because because of this guy, Bruce Williams, called right away. Mm-hmm. All right, so next we're going to discuss the crime scene, and then we're going to get into the suicide note. So on the crime scene, Kurt Cobain's body was found lying on his back, and a shotgun was on his chest. And right next to him, there was like um, a cigar box that had all of his like drug kit, the whole like uh, the needle and his dope and what have you. I guess there's a whole kit that people have, especially if they're injectors. Um, that's obviously not the name, but whatever. <laughs> that's what I call them is injectors. So he had his little kit right next to him, all like a uh, neatly packed up inside this cigar box. And uh, his wallet was also right next to him as well. 
along with some other things, I guess, but heroin and Valium was in his system and it was two to three times uh, the lethal dose. And the specifically what they're talking about is the amount of heroin within his system was uh, two to three times the lethal dose. And there's actually been studies that I'm aware of that, that some people have pulled up that refute this saying that no, it's actually not two or three times the lethal dose because he was a hardcore addict and he had a, a much higher tolerance than anybody else. And one of the studies um, claims to have pictures of some fella that's on much higher of a dose and he's also standing on one leg while talking to the doctor that gave him, him this dose. But the problem with that study is that he was actually given an oral methadone, I believe, uh, was the, the, subst the substance. So even, even if it was heroin and he gave it to him orally, it would still take a hell of a lot longer for all that heroin to get into your blood system. And not only that, but it's not as immediate of a, a thing either. And, and not as much heroin would be readily available as it would be if you injected it is what I'm trying to say, I guess the long winded version. Yeah. Well, also I just, <laughs> I just like to, to pipe in here for a second to mention as well that Kurt Cobain was a really tiny guy. Apparently I found the information I could find is yeah. about like 115 pounds or something that he's basically almost as small as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the, the crime scene is kind of frustrating too, especially the, the investigation as well, because it seems like the investigation was, was lazily done. There's very little information that we've gotten. As a matter of fact, there's been very few pictures even that were um, developed from the crime scene, from what I understand. Recently, actually, there, there were some more that were developed, but they don't have anything of, of, of substance really in them. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the what I found is that the main crime scene photos weren't developed until 21 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. 21 yeah, well, years. What kind of investigation waits 21 years to, to develop the crime scene photographs? Yeah, well, the only reason why is because that, that documentary, Soaked in Bleach, came out, and so there's public pressure that was put on them. So they, they, I think they did that kind of to shut people up. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, there, there's so many odd things that are involved in this case. Like supposedly on the, uh, the drug paraphernalia that was next to Kirk Cobain, there was no fingerprints that were found on, on any of it. Right. Yeah. So how are you going to, how are you going to shoot up drugs <laughs> without putting so fingerprints much? on the stuff? <laughs> that's, uh, that's just weird. You know, he wasn't the, the, the suicide, the suicide note is even freaking weird. Yeah. You know, the, the suicide note, the note was next to Kurt Cobain supposedly on top of a planner. And there was a pen stuck through the note, like pinning it down basically to the dirt. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? There was, there was no prints that were found on the pen. So there's a lot of really odd stuff relating to the suicide note. And some of it, most of it actually, all of it that we know about is, is because of this private investigator grant. So he was able to make a photocopy of it from his own words. He says that he fooled Courtney Love into letting, letting him borrow it so he can make a photocopy of it. Good old slick Grant. So after studying the notes, Grant believed that it was actually a letter written by Cobain announcing his intent to leave Love, Seattle, and the music business. You can actually find a, a copy of this. It's right there on Wikipedia, actually, of this suicide note. For anybody interested who wants to, you know, check in to see what it looks like and stuff. But the, so the, there's lines, the, the note itself is written in a fairly small hand, but at the very bottom yeah. and at the very top, there's a writing that looks like it's written by a completely different hand. And it's about like 10 times as big as the other letters. 
and it looks like real s- and a lot sloppier too. Yeah, it looks yeah, look real sloppy. It looks like like a right-handed person wrote it with their left hand, kind of a thing. It doesn't look anything. He said it was the the last four lines, right? Yeah, I believe so. And it, it's just a couple extra lines at the bottom. Those are the only lines that actually talk about suicide. We're not. I don't want to read mm-hmm. the whole note here, but if you go online and read the note, it talks about a lot of stuff. Like he feels like he's being insincere and fake because he'll you know he'll play these big stadium shows, but he doesn't enjoy it. He feels like he's ripping off the fans. He's not you know he's not doing the music that they deserve and this kind of stuff. And it doesn't really mm-hmm. talk about suicide except for the final lines that were added on there. And that's the only part that actually means suicide. And that's like after everything else. Yeah. So this, this gets a little more, sus- just a little more suspicious because <laughs> when Courtney was staying with Rosemary Carroll on the sixth, the lawyer, remember she went mm-hmm. through Courtney's backpack and found a handwriting sheet that looked like she was practicing how to write like Kurt, which I don't, she must not have practiced that much because if you look at the suicide note, I don't, it probably wasn't her that wrote it. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, yeah. The, those last four lines are a bit atrocious. It's, I mean, it's, it's like you, like you said, it's just, you, you look at the picture of the suicide note online and you see those last four lines. You're like, what? That's it's so different from every other word on that that sheet. It's like okay, well, that, at, at the very least, that was written at a different period of time and a state of mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it looks like completely different handwriting to me. I, I don't but, know how. I don't know how, as like a, a a detective in law enforcement, you could look at that and and think, yeah, that's legit. Right. But even even so, there's you know a handwriting practice sheet that. It, why would you have something like that? That just kind of weird. I don't know any legitimate reason that I could think of. The official report concluded that Cobain wrote the note, but um, Grant says that that report doesn't distinguish those final lines from the rest of the note. So the, there's no mention in the report that these look like two completely different handwriting styles. Mm-hmm. And I have a quote here from Rosemary talking about the notes. And she says, I think someone went through his notebooks found passages that could be plausibly cobbled together to a suicide note and then traced them or forged them or something like that. And if you read through the note, it does seem to jump around a, quite a bit between topics. So it could be, but on the other hand, who knows? I mean, it could just be, he's jumping around to topics. There was a second suicide note found near the uh, greenhouse door and it was addressed to Courtney Love and a redacted person, which we assume is is their child. So it was supposedly signed by Kurt Cobain, and this note was never made public. Yeah, but if uh, if you remember, um, this particular note was the name Cobain was misspelled. It was spelled oh, yeah. C O L B A I N on the note. Which, yeah, which you know, <laughs> I don't yeah. know when the last time you ever misspelled your own name. It's kind of weird. Uh, even if you're hopped up on all kinds of goofballs, it's probably something that's like just so seared within your psyche. You, you, it's, you wouldn't spell it wrong. You just would, you just wouldn't, I don't know. It just, it doesn't make any sense, you know? And there's, yeah. and there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Like, like I said, like you'll, you'll hear me say that a bunch of times throughout this whole thing. It's like, man, this just doesn't make sense. There's a bunch of things <laughs> that just don't make sense. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, this is a tough case for me because like as I'm recording, I just my blood pressure keeps going up and up, you know. <laughs> and well, let's just continue on down the line with stuff that don't make sense. So the the shotgun that was used in the suicide, or 
the death, whatever you want to call it. The shotgun was not checked for Prince until one month later. It doesn't show a very good chain of custody for for that evidence, you know what I mean? Yeah. There were there were no usable prints on it, but for partial, there were smeared prints that looked like they were wiped off. Um, so maybe that could have happened while, while it was collected, while the evidence was collected. Or it could be evidence that peop- somebody actively tried to remove fingerprints from that, that weapon, you know? It, they wouldn't all be smeared. I mean, what are the chances, right? Yeah, yeah. And there, so there were also, there were three shells that were loaded into the weapon, not just one. Why would you need three if, I mean, it's a shotgun. Right. It's, it's a 20-gauge shotgun, which isn't, it's not a 12-gauge, but it's still a shotgun. So one bullet's going to do you. There's yeah, no if, doubt about that. If I mean, if you're planning on on something like that, why would you load three shells? I don't know, maybe out of mm-hmm. habit, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so the box of shotgun shells that were, was right next to him, it was within a, a little brown paper bag. There were, there were no fingerprints on any of those as well, on the box or on the shells. And I and thought, then, I want to know what you think about this. So I thought that was kind of an odd detail because he probably, he didn't keep the shotgun and the shells. They were, those were not kept in the greenhouse. Those were kept in his bedroom. So wouldn't you load the shotgun in the bedroom and then go to the greenhouse, right? You wouldn't take the uh, box of shells with you, would you? Well, I mean, suicide isn't exactly a rational thing to do. So yeah, well, that's true. I, I, guess, yeah. I, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily expect somebody to have a whole train of rational events lead up to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Who, who knows what the heck somebody's going to do when, when they're getting ready to do something like that. If he did in fact kill himself. He, either his hands would have been very full with all his drug kits and shotguns and things, or he would have had to make a couple of trips to carry all his crap up there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, when you do in heroin, when, when some, when you have a heroin addict, yeah, if they have a tolerance, they need to use more heroin to get the same effect or a, a sufficient enough effect for them. Mm-hmm. But when they do get that effect, they're still incapacitated. We're talking right. about heroin here. Okay, <laughs> when yeah. somebody is is sufficiently messed up on heroin, whatever term you want to use, there I, I highly doubt they're going to be able to load a gun, even if the, the gun is already loaded. Okay, let's just give them that benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. They're gonna not care enough about anything to to go through the actions of actually putting that rifle in the correct position to where you can even kill yourself. Because let's not right. forget this is this is a long rifle. It's not exactly an easy thing to shoot yourself with a weapon that large, not because right. the length of it, but I mean, the length of it is one of the main things, but the, the trigger is going to end up being so far away from you that it's just going to be tough. And that's the reason why supposedly the trigger was pulled with his toe. From what I understand. Well, and, is that correct? Yeah. And like what you're saying, I don't know if people are probably, most people are not that familiar with it, but when you inject drugs into your bloodstream, it goes into effect pretty much immediately. It's not like taking a shot of whiskey yeah. where it takes a little while. It happened, yeah. I mean, right away. So he would have either been dead or best case scenario with the amount of drugs he had in his system, he would have been in a coma with the mm. needle hanging out of his arm. He would not yeah. have had the faculties to take that needle out of his arm, roll down his sleeve place his mm-hmm. stuff neatly back into his drug kit because it was placed in there neatly. It wasn't like all, you know, jumbled well, around. It was in there real and, neatly. And also, what's the stereotypical scene that you hear depicted like whenever anybody is found OD'd on heroin? They're almost always found with a needle still in their arm. 
That'll, right. That right there, that right there will tell you how fast acting it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, a minute window of time. <laughs> it's directly into yeah. the bloodstream. You know, it's like, like I said, I, I think that he would have been far too incapacitated or high enough to where he just wouldn't have cared because that's, right. that's one of the, that's one of the, the effects of that drug of an opiate like that, especially a strong opiate like that is it just takes away, you know, your inhibition. It takes away your care about things. I don't know. I'm not, I know I'm not right. doing the explanation justice. I don't really no, understand yeah. it, but no, I, I think that makes total sense. Like even, even if he did have the faculty to do so, he wouldn't have organized the drug kit. He would have just like, just tossed it or, or wherever, you know, but mm. he, with the amount in his system, he, there's no way he could have done that anyways. And he certainly could not have positioned the shotgun to shoot himself in the head with it. There's just no way with the amount in his system. It's just, it's not, humanly possible it's very yeah it's just everything points to it being unlikely you know yeah which is one of the reasons why i think we're choosing to to look into it as as deeply as we are like i said there's there's a whole string of things that just don't make sense odd instances and red flags for instance the the shell so when the the shotgun shell that was ejected from from that weapon was on the opposite side of the ejection port which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there, there wasn't supposed to have been anything right next to Kurt Cobain for it to bounce off of. The only thing that hmm. I could think of that it may have bounced off of was maybe his hand or his arm, but uh -huh. it just, it, it doesn't seem like that would be real possible because of how his like arm and hand were, were situated on the gun right. because of like, like how we were, we were describing how stretched out you would have to be in order to make that work. Um, his arms and his hands should not have been in the way of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and there was no wall or, or big obstruction right next to him to make it like that shell bounce off and then end up on the opposite side. He had the gun, by the way, for, for the listeners, he had the gun upside down as opposed to like how you would normally hold it. Like if you're aiming at a target or something like that, um, he had it opposite of that upside down. So the, the trigger would have been facing away from him. Yes, correct. There's a few more details of the case that just sort of, it's kind of like the, the sugar sprinkling on top. That's just as if it wasn't already weird enough, it gets weirder. So for example, the gentleman who was the chief of police at the time says that he made a mistake and that the case should be reopened. So, you know, this is not like, you know, a towel boy or, you know, the mail guy or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is the chief of police of Seattle said that he made a mistake and that the case should be reopened. I think that's a pretty significant detail. Although he did say yes. this after he retired from chief. He's, he, did, he didn't say this while he was still chief. He said it after he'd retired. So it kind of makes well, one wonder. I wonder, I wonder why. Yeah. Like why <laughs> didn't he actually reopen the case when he was able to do so? Why does he come out so many years later and say, you know, this should be reopened. I couldn't do it when I was working as chief of police because, uh, you know, reasons, but we should do it now. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that, that didn't happen, you know, that, that probably should have, you know, like, like the, the living nanny that we mentioned that he was never interviewed by the police. The person that lived there, the living nanny, that was close, very, as close as you can get to the, the family, you know. Well, and almost certainly the last person to see Kurt alive. That isn't that, that's what they always say, you know, they, they always want to talk to the last person who saw him, you know, the, the last witness who saw him before they died. That's a very important person mm -hmm. to talk to. 
Well, and and as well, so the first day, from what I understand, that the crime scene was established at the house, mm-hmm. Tom Grant went over there and and actually stated to the, one of the deputies that was on the outside perimeter that he wanted to talk to the investigator that was in charge. And he told that deputy that he was there at the house the night before. Let mm-hmm. me just say this again. He just told the, he told the deputy that he was at a house the night before where they had just found a, a dead body. Mm-hmm. And the detective did not want to talk to him because he was too busy. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. Oh, what? my gosh. <laughs> what the? What? In what oh. world, sir? Oh, you In were what here, world? You were here last night and this guy's dead now. Ah, just whatever. Carry on. Carry yeah. on. Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm too busy for all that. You know, it, everybody's just super chill in Seattle, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, another thing that's interesting about they ruled this an investigation. Let me say that again. They ruled this a suicide pretty much immediately without any sort of investigation. So before they checked mm-hmm. for prints, before they even developed the photo. Well, obviously we know about the photographs before they did yeah. any sort of paperwork or anything. They pretty much just said, boom, right away. Suicide. They didn't investigate well, and, it at all. And it's it's even worse than that, too, because it was revealed later on that the person, and this is through uh, Tom Grant's investigations, is the reason why we know this. The person who initially ruled it as a suicide wasn't even an investigator. It was a regular police officer that was working the beat. Mm-hmm. This person wasn't a detective, wasn't an investigator, so they, they should not have the qualifications to even rule something like that. You know what I mean? Right. That they should be something, yeah. like, something like that is above their pay grade is what I'm saying. Yeah. And there, so there's a couple other things that may not be super suspicious, but they still kind of fit in, which is that um, Kurt was cremated six days after he was found. So that it seems like mm-hmm. there was... Yeah, maybe not, but you could also frame that as looking like they wanted to get rid of evidence. They being, you know, Courtney. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and also the the shotgun, she had the shotgun melted down and the greenhouse where he was found had was demolished. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of looks like she's trying to erase all the evidence there. So there's a couple of inconsistencies when it comes to the report and the investigation done by law enforcement there. The report says that there was a stool that was blocking the entryway door. And the way that some people had described it was like the stool was was up against the door, like blocking entry, basically. But that it turns out that's not the case because it was stated by not only the uh, paramedics, by, uh, but also when the report was uh, cited, it doesn't say that in the, in the report. Uh, Tom Grant had actually looked at the report and, and he had found out that it doesn't say that at all in, in the report. That was something that somebody else had claimed, and it was something that I guess had stuck, you know. Um, yeah, and I also uh, read the weird. I also read that even if the stool had been in front of the door, it was like a really small stool, so it wouldn't have blocked anything. Well, yeah, and people claim that like that was caused to believe that the door was barred. You know what I mean? Like there, there yeah. was it was a it was a barrier that Kurt Cobain had put up, right? And he had yeah. locked and 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 barred the doors. Well, first of all, the doors, they're they're glass doors. Basically, it's, it's mostly all glass, which it wouldn't be hard to break through at all. But the the lock that's on the door is one of those twist locks. Like from the inside, it's just a twist lock. So mm-hmm. let's just say, for example, if you wanted to, you could lock that from the inside and walk out. You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. And since yeah. we have multiple people saying that saying that there was a stool there and it was in front of the door, but it wasn't blocking the door. It was just in front of it was in the area in front of the door, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. So the the door being locked and there being a stool there doesn't doesn't, you know, create a barrier in my opinion, you know. Mm-hmm. So the lead detective later, this is a very important, I think, because it's another <laughs> example. Maybe of, we should of, have started the episode. <laughs> Maybe that, yeah, or at least yeah. mention this. Probably this is a pretty important uh, note to 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 touch on here because the lead detective later on in his career was forced to resign because he planted evidence. It was proved that he planted evidence to actually. I guess he tried. He was trying to um, save another officer that had stolen this evidence. And so he was basically trying to put it back. So the other officer didn't get in trouble. Is that correct? I think that was a scenario from what I understand. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember the details of the scenario. I just remember reading that he had, he was forced to resign over planting evidence. So, I mean, any, if he even shred of credibility that he had is completely out the window. This guy was probably a dirt bag. And if Mm. anybody was going to be up to some sort of shenanigans, it would have been him. Yeah, so you know, that kind of sounds like a guy that would would just say, "Yeah, I'm too busy to talk to somebody that was here at the crime scene the night right. before," you know, at, or, where a dead body was found, or perhaps somebody who might have taken money to you know frame a crime scene a certain way. <laughs> hey, man, I, I didn't say it. Uh, I didn't say it either <laughs> because you know it's it, what is it, libel, slander? I don't know. That's why you have to say um, allegedly, right? Is that what you have to say? Allegedly, I don't know, whichever. Whichever yeah. comes first. Allegedly, this detective would have been the type of person who would take money to falsify a crime scene. There we go. I think that's uh, that's what I wanted to say. Definitely lack morals, that's for sure. Another inconsistency in the report was that the report said that his license was placed on top of his wallet, as if Kurt had done that himself. But that's mm-hmm. not true. Actually, an officer had opened up the wallet. I think it was either an officer or maybe a a paramedic trying to ID him. But anyways, one of the emergency responders had taken the license out and placed it on the wallet as sort of like to identify the body, helping helping to ID him. But the police report said that, you know, Kurt had done that. And that's maybe a small inconsistency. But when you're talking about a police report, something that could be used in the court of law to take away somebody's life, you know, life and liberty... That mm-hmm. it's pretty important if they don't get the details right. You know, if if stuff like this is wrong, then what else in that report is wrong? Yeah, um, yeah. A forensic pathologist named Dr. Cyril said that the double method of suicide doesn't make any sense. And if you think about it, it is a little weird. So imagine that if somebody's going to commit suicide by jumping off of a bridge, but they also shoot themselves on the way down. It, it's kind of bizarre. Like, I don't think I've, I've never actually heard of another case that I can think of where somebody does two things. Like they, they jump in front of a train and shoot up heroin at the same time or whatever. It's like really weird. They always well, use one. It method. happens. It happens, you know, but usually those persons have uh, some kind of relation to the Clintons. Typically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Those people who, you know, they shot themselves in the back 15 times to commit suicide, that kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it, you know they, they, they shot themselves in the head, but they also have strangulation marks on their neck. Well, you know, it's it's a good way to do it, I suppose, if you if you got to go. Make, make sure, right? <laughs> I mean, if you've made your mind up, then why not be thorough? Yeah, yeah, why not? 
So another another really weird thing that so this one is hard to know for sure because the witness may not be the most reliable dude. But anyways, <laughs> there's a guy named Eldon Hoke. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There's a guy named Eldon Hoke. He claims yeah, that he Diablo was, or whatever. Yeah, like that. Google a picture of him. I dare you. So <laughs> he, allegedly he was offered 50k by Courtney to kill Kurt. That's what he says. And we can't really follow up on this because very soon after he came out with this, he was found dead under mm-hmm. mysterious circumstances. It's kind of take it with a grain of salt. So another kind of little side story related to this is uh, Christian Pfaff or Christian Pfaff. I almost said Christian Pfaff, but at any rate, she's the uh, basis for Hole. So it appears that she may have had a, a relationship with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, the rumors are that that they were they were dating secretly, and after he died, she left Seattle and you know she went home to the Midwest, wherever she's from. I f- I forgot where, and she cleaned mm-hmm. up. She stopped taking drugs or whatever. And then when she came back to Seattle to get some her stuff and say goodbye to friends and stuff, on the last day that she was there before she left, she found she was found dead, overdosed on heroin. Yeah, which is, uh, I mean, it's just odd, man, because she had supposedly cleaned up and was very much so on the up and up. Well, and you you can't really prove anything, but it seems strange to me, too, because if you're a drug addict, you're not going to wait until you're there. I think it was the third day she was there or something. If mm-hmm. you're going to if you're going to hit up those drugs, you're going to do it the first day. You're not going to wait until you're going home to shoot up some drugs. Eh. If you're hooked on well, some, I mean, you're going to do it right away, right? I mean, maybe, maybe not. It, it might have been one of those things where she tried, you know, first couple of days she tried, she tried, but then she just gave in, right? Yeah, that's true. Could be. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm willing to believe either, either way would be fine, you know, with me as far as a, a time period. Yeah. But what, what makes it a little suspicious to me is that there are witnesses saying that Courtney had publicly threatened her before. So it, mm-hmm. again, it doesn't prove anything, but it's just, it's another little interesting tidbit. Yeah. All right, I think that's that's pretty much all we have. So any final thoughts on the, the death of Kurt Cobain? To wrap it up, I guess I could only say that it's a very odd situation with, with a lot of red flags, and it just doesn't seem like Courtney Love is being honest from my perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we could go over a lot of the red flags and odd situations again, but it's just so damn odd, man. It, it's... It it doesn't add up. The math yeah. just doesn't add up. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I feel. Like there's so there's as far as I could find, there's no really hard proof necessarily where you could convict her, but it just mm-hmm. seems really, really strange that there was basically no investigation. And then after the fact, yeah. when some of this stuff came out, specifically the recordings with Tom Grant, which you know, that's pretty much hard evidence right there. But at least it should be reopened and reinvestigated, or it should have been a long time ago. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's no statute of limitations on murder. And a lot of these people are still around, even though it was in the 90s. You know, they're they're not that mm-hmm. old. <laughs> and I see no reason why, even today, why this case shouldn't be reopened and reinvestigated, because there's just too much that doesn't add up with it. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest, like, tragedy when, when we're talking about this uh, case is, is that the investigation wasn't done right from the beginning. Yeah. Cause I think if any investigator that was at least a decent investigator and had, had a good mind, mm-hmm. they would have taken the totality of what they're seeing and, and they would have 
seen something wrong, something very off. The investigation was so incompetent. It's hard to believe that there are any police officers that bad out there. It's it's mm-hmm. so incompetent that it kind of looks like a like an inside job to me. I mean, because sure, laziness almost doesn't add up to this. You know what I mean? Like, it, right? That, that's that's some extensive damn laziness for you just to completely ignore somebody that had been there the day before at a house that you just found a dead body. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, there there are no cops that incompetent. That's that level of incompetence just doesn't exist in reality. It's just too much. You know, yeah, that's it, that's willful, willful ignorance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's not proof in and of itself that it, but the, everything about the case is like that. You know, it it's mm-hmm. none of it's proof, but it's just too much to not. It's too much to ignore it all. Yeah, I agree. OK, so let's end up the episode with a quote, as usual, this time from Kurt Cobain. I'm a spokesman for myself. It just so happens that there's a bunch of people that are concerned with what I have to say. I find that frightening at times because I'm just as confused as most people. I don't have the answers for anything. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. If you have any thoughts on the case, let us know on Twitter at AlienConPod. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill.